listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 120. Today, we're going to take a deeper look at Donald Trump's potential cabinet of deplorables and look at the impact this wrecking crew might have on workers. But first, the news. All eyes were on Washington, D.C. on Friday, January 20th, as protesters swarmed the inauguration of Donald Trump. But in Minneapolis, the first strike targeting Trumpism was already underway. The Centro de Trabajadores Unidos en Lucha, or CITUL, has been organizing subcontracted janitors for years in the Twin Cities area, winning an unprecedented union contract for many of them by pressuring Target to come to the table. But the janitors that clean Home Depot's the store known among, well, other things, for its founder's support for Trump, still make minimum wage. I spoke to Luciano Balbuena before the strike about his work and why strike against Trump. What is going on tomorrow? Tell us, uh, tell us about the strike. ¿Qué va a pasar mañana, Luciano? Mañana, pues vamos a hacer una huelga para, pues ahora sí que para hacer un una como protesta por nuestra por nuestro salario que pues, no estamos estamos con un salario de pobreza y esperemos que con esto manifestación que se haga uh, esperemos que pues eh, la compañía se preste a dialogar con nosotros and so t- tomorrow there's going to be a strike and a big protest and principally uh, fighting over the issues of them paying us poverty wages and we hope by having the protest that um, we are able to to get in dialogue with the company. So, what is the what is the role in, of Home Depot in this relationship? ¿Y, y qué es el papel de de la tienda Home Home Depot en esta relación laboral? Pues, pues Home Depot, pues le bueno nosotros le trabajamos haciendo la limpieza en general toda su tienda. First, the company has a contract to clean every Home Depot store. What does the whole thing have to do with Donald Trump and the inauguration that's also happening tomorrow? Y, y cómo eso toca el tema de la juramentación de Donald Trump mañana. Bueno, pues lo que lo que nos quiera decir que pues que no es justo que que esté de acuerdo con lo que nos están pagando a nosotros como trabajadores uh, que le estamos trabajando a la compañía Kinko que pues es un salario muy bajo y Entonces es posible que no, pues, que vea ese tipo de problema y, y esperemos que ya con esto, pues, lo valorice y nos valorice nuestro trabajo y que nos haga un salario justo. Pues que es un, una persona muy, ahora sí que muy, este, muy, muy racista para nosotros, como nosotros, como trabajadores, estamos ilegales, que no, no le, pues no le gusta a él, esos tipos de personas que somos nosotros. The, you know, principally it's company pays very low wages. You know, we're trying to put a stop to the poverty wages. You know, and, and, and Donald Trump, he supports these low wages and he said that he doesn't think workers deserve better wages. You know, and he, and he's the person that's, you know, very racist against Latino workers. And, and so for all of these reasons, that's why we are, we're coming together tomorrow. That was Luciano Babuena, a member of CITUL. President Trump seemed to make good on a major campaign promise earlier this week when he issued a set of executive actions and statements announcing an overhaul, supposedly, of U.S. trade relations with the rest of the world. This includes scrapping the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the much-maligned Pacific Rim trade deal that Trump opportunistically opposed to score populist points on the campaign trail, and also an announcement that he would renegotiate NAFTA, a similar trade agreement involving the North American countries. The moves appear in line with his promise that he would somehow strike a new deal with our trade partners that would bring more jobs back to the U.S. As we've reported before, there was long-standing bipartisan opposition to the TPP, And, of course, it was well-deserved. But, like his political gestures towards Big Auto and Carrier, Trump seems to be using the issue to buy more populist credibility through spectacle, as he tweets about supposedly bullying corporate bosses to do his bidding to preserve a few hundred factory jobs here and there. So what's the real deal behind these trade deals? I talked to Arthur Stimulus of Citizens Trade Campaign, who, while certainly critical of neoliberal trade deals, he approaches it from the left 
and wants anyone who thinks Trump's trade policy will help rather than hurt workers in the U.S. should be pretty skeptical about the future terms of Trump's negotiations with our trading partners. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of room for skepticism that he's going to put people ahead of corporate interests uh, in this renegotiation and trade policy in general moving forward. There's a, there's a very strong cross-border, cross-sector movement of movements that's been working on trade for many, many years, and we're going to have to remain very vigilant, you know, not only to <laughs> hopefully make things better, but to ensure they don't get worse. The promise uh, is not just to end an already defunct TPP or to reopen NAFTA. It's the promises put it, you know, creating actual policies that benefit working people over corporate profits. Uh, and so our coalition of labor, environmental, family firm, consumer, you know, faith groups, you know, put out a pretty detailed, you know, sort of 10 major areas of change that need to happen to put working people on the planet ahead of corporate interest policy. I mean, specific to the question of jobs, you know, we need actual strong enforceable labor standards um, that have clear standards, standards, you know, such as international organizations, core conventions um, that are not easy for, for countries and governments to skirt. You know, that's one piece of it. And then we need, you know, strong origin to ensure that the components that go into a, a complex product like a car or a computer or a cell phone, um, you know, aren't made in countries, third-party countries that are skirting these labor and environmental standards. You know, yes, we need to address currency manipulation. You know, there, there's a host of other issues that, that could protect jobs in the U.S. while also uh, hopefully improving quality of life uh, in our trading partner nation. We want to protect the livelihoods of American workers and ensure that there are good-paying jobs for American workers, uh, but that does not mean we're anti-trade, and that does not mean that we buy into this narrative uh, that many are pushing, that it's the U.S. against the rest of the world. When it comes to trade policy, we understand you know, that the, the problem with our trade policy has mainly been multinational corporations <laughs> against majorities in every country. We need trade agreements that, uh, yes, pr protect jobs for American workers, but as part of that are lifting labor standards or lifting environmental standards or improving uh, quality of life for people globally. I mean, that's the best way to create markets for U.S. products. That's the, the best way to stop and reverse this race to the bottom. Trump's erratic trade agenda so far revolves around pro-corporate tax cuts and destroying as many as three-quarters of government regulations. In other words, replacing the current neoliberal free trade regime with something that might be even more regressive in terms of workers' rights in the welfare state. Sadly, yet not surprisingly, he seems to be using this as a winning formula. He's been meeting with top union leaders this week about bringing back construction jobs. This is part of his charm offensive for certain segments of the mainstream labor movement. It seems that he is conditioning this uh, connection to reopening the Keystone and Dakota pipeline projects that threaten environmental health and indigenous rights around the world. We'll be reporting more on Trump's divide and conquer approach and why it might or might not work in the coming weeks. That sound you just heard was Nikki Haley's high heel snapping. Haley might be on her way to the United Nations not a bit too soon, since one of the things she most opposed might be coming to pass. The South Carolina governor famously said that she wore high heels to kick unions with, and now the Boeing plant in the heart of South Carolina is about to see a union vote. The International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, IAM, held a press conference on January 20th, again, just as Trump was being sworn in, to announce that around 2,800 workers at the North Charleston Boeing plant would vote on membership in the union. The union already rescheduled one election after rampant interference by, among others, Nikki Haley. The plant in South Carolina, you may remember, was the site of a battle over whether Boeing retaliated against its unionized workforce in Washington, which had refused to agree to a no-strike clause at the Dreamliner plant by moving more of its work, including this Dreamliner plant that is going to see a union vote, 
down to union-unfriendly South Carolina. A victory for the workers in North Charleston would be a blow to this strategy of shifting jobs to the South with this assumption that they will be lower paid and lower security with no unions to get in the way. Boeing workers just want to be treated with the respect they deserve, said IAM Boeing South Carolina lead organizer Mike Evans. Why should they be subject to a different set of standards and rules than folks building the exact same plane in Seattle? We will most definitely keep you updated on this story, and if you are a Boeing worker in Seattle or in North Charleston, or if you are organizing anywhere in the South, we want to hear from you at hashtag belabored or at belabored at descentmagazine.org. There is more information about this and everything else we were talking about today at the Descent website. You might think that with Trump threatening to deport millions of undocumented immigrants around the country, tweeting hate speech every few minutes, and promising to build a gigantic border wall, Immigrants in your neighborhood would be hiding in fear, but in some cities, they're doing quite the opposite and their communities have their back, and labor is a big part of it. There are worker-led protests nationwide to oppose Trump on Inauguration Day, but among the loudest, proudest voices were immigrant workers in some cities, and they're working with allies in their communities to defy Trump, including highlighting the issue of so-called sanctuary cities. These are cities which have, to varying degrees, established policies of non-cooperation with federal immigration authorities, using their powers under federalism to avoid being pressured to help the Freds to enforce immigration crackdowns, arrests, detentions, etc. There are several dozen of these cities nationwide, but currently they're under siege because Trump has just issued an executive directive threatening to cut off grant funding for these sanctuary cities if they refuse to comply with federal law enforcement. But surprisingly, since the election, some cities have actually come out in force and clarified their sanctuary policies, showing that they will stand firm against Trump's xenophobic crusade. Workers are taking advantage of these local freedoms while they still last. On Friday at Northeastern University in Boston, dining services workers with Unite Here Local 26, representing workers at area universities and hotels, staged a one-day strike to defend, quote, our American principles. These are a set of moral guidelines that the union upholds in defiance of what's happening with immigration on the federal level. And it's based on mutual respect, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, sexual orientation, and, of course, immigration status. For workers, sanctuary city protections provide some reassurance that they can go to work each day or complain to authorities about an abusive boss without having to worry about a cop demanding to see their ID. Beyond that, it is a show of solidarity with fellow community members and also fellow workplace colleagues. It's critical that unions show solidarity with immigrant workers in these days because, as we've seen, divide and conquer among workers is a tried-and-true formula that many politicians have used to weaken both the labor movement and the civil rights movement. Trump is playing this card to his advantage so far, but we'll see how far that gets him. And I can tell you that from here in New York City, it seems that sanctuary policies are here to stay, and so are the immigrants that we're committed to protecting. Now, you may be reeling from all the controversies this week swirling around Trump's nominations for top administrative posts. So to help us wade through the political cesspool is Andy Stetner of the Century Foundation, who has been holding his nose, watching all the hearings closely, and analyzing each nominee for what they might do to the economy and what they might do on workers' rights. He talked to us to dish the dirt on the top posts that may be steering federal labor policy for years to come. Many of these pending confirmations, of course, are a done deal, but this is our first and perhaps last chance to be able to hold these figures accountable on the record for what they promise. So when I've been looking at at Trump's cabinet picks, the first thing that I've been thinking of over and over again is Thomas Frank's book, The Wrecking Crew, which was, of course, written about George W. Bush's cabinet. Um, so can you start out by talking a little bit about the, this tendency for conservatives to appoint people who want to destroy the thing they're appointed to run? So I think this is um, even much more than George W. Bush. Yes. A cabinet, a provocative cabinet picked, exclusively picking out those individuals who are as against um, the agencies that they're being picked to run almost as possible. Uh, a, a private a voucher um, uh, 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 zealot for Department of Education 
uh, a fast food executive uh, for the labor secretary for for the labor secretary, um, the chief lawyer against the EPA uh, to run that agency, um, the the doctor who um, who rails against um, the ma- mainstream doctors and wants to um, privatize Medicare uh, and Medicaid and repeal the ACA to lead uh, HHS. Uh, across the board, uh, you know, with with some exceptions, um, across the board, this has been a cabinet that has kind of, you know, um, epitomized what Grover Norquist um, has long said is the goal of the conservative movement to reduce to reduce the size of government to uh, a place where you could drown in, in a bathtub, uh, and that's what they, you know, they are doing, uh, you know, with uh, with these agencies and these picks. And I think they were very important to me uh, because. You know, Trump, um, you know, ran, um, did not have a long political history, uh, ran a campaign as uh, an outsider, as as uh, someone who was going to, um, you know, shake up Washington and not do things in the normal ways. But when he went to his cabinet, uh, Mm -hmm. he went to, um, you know, those that the conservative uh, establishment would have chosen as their stars um, on uh, each of their uh, agenda items. Speaking of which, I guess um, a case in point might be uh, Andy Puzder, who, I mean, I, I'm just thinking of, you know, going through this list and seeing, I mean, it's it's almost like it's true what they say about Trump coming pre-satirized. Like, you cannot pick people who are more polar opposite of, you know, what the agencies are intended to do. So, you know, to head um, a labor department at a time when fast food workers are um, helping to lead a low-wage workers movement nationwide he picks a fast food impresario with an above average even record of labor rights violations um under his belt um but aside from just the sheer absurdity of that um corporate profile coming in um what what can you tell us about um you know how Andrew Puzder is uh, different from previous labor secretaries, um, not just in his in terms of his business background, but also in the types of policies he's advocated. I think Andy Puzder is pretty unique in recent history among Republican chosen labor secretaries. Not only does he come from business, but he has someone who's been a very vocal and outspoken member of the Job Creators Network, which is a network of um, very right-wing CEOs who have identified government as the main problem uh, in the economy and whose goal is to uh, undo uh, regulations. Um, so he is coming in, you know, predisposed uh, against the Mission Labor Department. Um, and, you know, he's said – uh, among his uh, own workers, fast workers, that when you're hiring fast workers, you're hiring the worst of the worst. And then he's also said among government workers that government workers um, you know, have no idea how the economy works, have have no accountability, uh, and you know, and thus really have no value. Um, and so now he's leading uh, an 18,000 uh, uh, person uh, agency. Uh, responsible for enforcing 180 labor laws. Previous GOP labor secretaries came in at their confirmation hearings, pledged their support for the mission of the Labor Department. The Labor Department was split off from the Commerce Department in 1913, explicitly to have one agency of government that was explicitly for workers. And as even labor secretaries might not have as much influence within their Republican administration because of that role. Um, they at least understood, uh, you know, that unique role uh, in combating discrimination, uh, in enforcing basic labor laws. Uh, and this is something that Puzder has come, you know, directly against. Uh, and I think, you know, very worried uh, about the Department of Labor not just undoing some of the good uh, that was done by President Obama, but really going backward in a way that's going to be very difficult to recover. Right. He seems to be attacking, like, the foundation of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is going way back there. Um, Are there specific policies? You mentioned the minimum wage. What are some of the specific um, policy reference points that um, stand out to you as particularly problematic? I know that he's also said things about the overtime rules that Obama tried to put in place as well. Yeah, he's been very specific about the overtime uh, you know, uh, rules and und- uh, undoing those. 
um, you know, where those stand right now, it's going to be uh, very easy uh, for President Trump to drop uh, the appeal um, to the to the stay that was put in by a very conservative judge in Texas. Uh, he's in very against the idea of meal breaks and paid leave mandates. You know, and President Obama extended uh, the right to paid sick days to 5.5 million federal contractors they could do through uh, executive order. Um, so I'll be very worried that he'll, uh, you know, reverse that uh, effort. Both his ads uh, and the way he talks about uh, women, for listeners who aren't familiar with this, um, his Carl's Jr. brand uh, has, um, you know, basically taken a strategy of selling uh, hamburgers with sexually explicit uh, ads uh, um, demeaning women. Not only that, um, he has uh, had more discrimination claims against uh, his company uh, than any other uh, company. And he said that his ads embody his personality. Uh, and that seems to come through in these discrimination claims uh, that women have filed. And, and when um, organizers surveyed workers, they found that sexual harassment um, was higher among uh, workers at Hardee's and Carl's Jr. than any other restaurant that they, they had ever surveyed. Now he's going to be the one in charge of the uh, Office of Federal Contract Compliance, which in, enforces affirmative action and anti-discrimination laws among the large federal and federal contracted workforce. So I'm going to be very concerned uh, about you know uh, both you know undoing uh, positive rules that were put in by Obama, like those protecting lesbian and gays, and also just enforcing the basic protections, uh, you know, that are there in the federal workforce. But of course, you know, our, our federal labor department, it's, you know, both understaffed and underfunded, um, you know, even during Obama, and a lot of uh, labor law and policy gets made on the state and local level, such as minimum wage laws, etc. So can you talk about any potential tension points that might emerge there? Is there going to be resistance, I guess, from states, uh, if he tries to roll back some of these laws on the federal side? I think the the bulk of enforcement is going to have to fall to the the state uh, the state level and and in the private sector. I do expect um, that he will have impact on private enforcement, you know, by by loosening the rules, um, you know, around uh, you know that you know that the courts end up looking at um, for determining how they enforce a wage an hour. Uh, and I could be worried. Um, I don't think this would ever make it to the Senate. Uh, but I certainly could be worried, um, you know, that there may be a move in Congress to seek to preempt local jurisdictions from, you know, putting uh, states from putting a minimum wage that was, that is too high. Um, you know, certainly worry that that could be something you could see, um, you know, getting uh, support, you know, from the Trump administration uh, and, and in Congress. Yeah. So from that uh, that cheerful one to um, another one that obviously a lot of our labor listeners are, are paying attention to, who is uh, Betsy DeVos, who shocked many people during her hearing by not appearing to know very basic things about education policy. Um, but for those who aren't familiar with her background and um, her political action, shall we say, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think again he he went to you know one of the most conservative bastions corners uh, to get Betsy DeVos. She's um, a scion of the Amway um, uh, retail um, fortunes, um, who has t- you know translated that wealth into her personal passion around uh, privatizing uh, public education. So she's supported um, you know uh, through her political donation to really focus in Michigan where she's from uh, very active and unregulated expansion uh, of charter schools uh, in that state um, you know and undermining uh, of public education you know, so I think you know she, she's really taking us back you know several decades in the public school wars you know in a sense there was kind of a little bit of a a, a, a detente uh, on the on the federal level you know, with the last passages of the major uh, elementary school legislation, you know, to, you know, allow charter schools, you know, to, to expand and have many restrictions on them, but not uh, open uh, up the federal spigots uh, to support, uh, you know, private school vouchers. Um, so, and, and, you know, she's kind of, you know, coming in and really will seek to disrupt, uh, you know, that, um, you know, that kind of, um, set of almost set of teeth, you know, that existed, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, on 
uh, on labor issues. And I think, you know, that was, you know, you can see that has had to make the, the AFT and NEA have to come out very strongly against her opposition. And I think there's, you know, the, the, the teachers unions, uh, have you know positioned themselves historically as also defenders of the rights of poor kids and minority kids to get a get a decent education, um, and I think it's pretty clear that you know Betsy DeVos um, you know would, would not uh, aggressively enforce uh, the civil rights laws. She wasn't even familiar um, with the IDEA, um, which is the law that millions of um, students and families with children special needs uh, depend on to get additional uh, services. Um, she wasn't familiar with some of the key uh, debates about whether you, how do you um, judge uh, the performance of underperforming schools, whether their their um, families were uh, growing in their appreciation or meeting a, a set standard. So she's you know not familiar with some of the very very basics, um, but very concerned. I think that she, she will allow for um, expansion uh, of federal funding for vouchers. Um, you know, which could really undermine public schools uh, and, you know, in increasing um, expansion of, you know, of charter schools in a way that will kind of destabilize, um, you know, the, the right to a basic quality education in many jurisdictions. Yeah. It, one of the things that was interesting is some of the names that were being tossed around before Trump announced Betsy DeVos were people who have, have gotten a lot of their progress under Democrats like Michelle Rhee and Ava Moskowitz. And so there had been this for a while, this sort of bipartisan, you know, consensus in favor of, you know, so-called corporate school reform. And so when Betsy DeVos was the one that was named, I thought it was an interesting choice because it seemed to be, again, it sort of seemed to be stepping back to Bush era demands and, and pressures around school reform rather than the sort of charter school quasi-progressive language that those people have been using for the last, you know, decade or so. Right. There was this kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of alliance between certain, you know, aspects of the civil rights, you know, uh, uh, community um, and uh, corporate school reformers, um, you know, around you know um, deregulation of education and really demonizing the teachers union as the, one of the problems in education, not one of the the solutions. Um, and I think he easily could have accomplished some of his goals, uh, conservative goals around uh, increasing privatization and you know um, you know dim diminished effect of. The charter school movement, you know, by by choosing someone like Michelle Rhee or Eva Moskowitz. I mean, you can imagine anyone more than Eva Moskowitz who could be the the ire of the teachers' union. But he chose to go uh, even more provocative, and I think that's something similar to you know his politics across. You know, he said he's going to have a 35% uh, tariff uh, against Mexico. He says he's you know going to uh, um, um, you know deport Muslims, and you know he's going to have uh, build a wall. All these things he says that are you know, um, you know, hyperbole seems to be his strategy, um, you know, to rile up his base. Um, and I think, he, you know, he's going to position himself, well, you know, that's what I have to do to be a negotiator to get something, you know, um, close to it. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it, it has fit his strategy in this case. But also it's uh, – I think if you look at, you know, in – when I look at the broader package of nominees, I, I also see the, the imprint of, uh, of the influence of Mike Pence um, and yeah. Paul Ryan – um, and having you know this um, very organized um, conservative viewpoint about the budget, uh, about regulation, uh, about taxes, um, and picking people um, that are you know from that bench and have been working on those ideas you know for some time, with the exception of trade. Um, you know, you look yeah. at someone like uh, Wilbur Ross or um, Robert Leitzer um, as the Office of Trade Representative. You know, he's you know. You know, pick people on uh, trade um, and to a certain section issues like infrastructure, like Wilfred Ross has been very active on um, that have have positions that that do seem to be and, and more than I thought. Um, um, we've had a lot of politicians that have talked good on trade uh, over the years when they were <laughs> running for office, uh, yeah. and then um, you know came back to the more corporate view uh, once when, they were president. Um, you know, I think he. He, I was impressed by Wilbur Ross's testimony. He seems to understand, um, you know, what a fair trade approach might actually look like. Um, and, you know, although he's been an incredibly controversial figure in the labor movement, um, you know, he has, um, you know, 
he is someone that has invested in in auto parts and steel and um you know has a relationship with unions um you know and believes in american manufacturing um you know and so he i think that's an exception uh of him not just kind of you know kowtowing to the republican uh, orthodoxy because he knows it's great politics and it's just amazing that it took a republican to finally figure this out i mean if you look at some of the polling from the american alliance for manufacturing you know it's tremendous bipartisan support among voters that we need to make things in this country so we can have good jobs and we can be economically competitive um but you know just the washington neoliberal consensus has you know um you know resisted that and, and really until donald trump yeah it's interesting to think about that because it seems like a very almost scott walker style divide and conquer strategy already right that he's meeting with people from the building trades that he met with um Hoffa that he's playing up to a certain part of the labor movement that is a very white male part of the labor movement meanwhile appointing people like Betsy DeVos um and Andy Puzder who are going to beat up on the less you know perceived less powerful and more female and more workers of color parts of the labor movement Yeah no it's very reminiscent to people follow politics in the Midwest I mean it's very reminiscent to how politics plays out in the Midwest you know, you have, you know, Republicans that are close to the building trades, uh, and so aspects of labor law, whether it be unemployment or other things, are, you know, uh, if they're good for people in the building trades, you know, they, they likely end up being there. If they're for any other workers, you know, they end up, you know, being, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, lessened. Um, and so I think there's a, definitely a, a danger of, uh, of divide and conquer, and actually we're going to, it's going to have to be counted on those unions to, you know, that have a little more leverage. Um, to use it uh, on broader issues and not be, you know, co-opted, um, you know, by by Trump. And I think it's very interesting. The building trades, um, you know, when I talk to people more on the lower level, you know, more on the staff level, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're candid that this administration is an existential threat um, to to building trades. Yeah. I mean, you have the Republicans in, in power in both the the House and Senate. You know, the building trades depend on the Davis-Bacon law, um, you know, and, and its state equivalents um, to, you know, have prevailing wage so their members can have a chance uh, of getting uh, getting work. Um, and I think, you know, already, you know, you have Mike Mulvaney, who is leading, uh, was a sponsor of legislation against the building trades and the requirements have project labor agreements, um, mm-hmm. you know, as the head of OMB. Um, and I think you'll have a lot of push. And you know, Trump was non-committal about Davis Bacon uh, right. in his meeting with the building trades. Um, so I think that was really stood out to me. And I, I was kind of surprised that you know they um, you know didn't come out and 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 say more about that at the end of the meeting. Um, you know, because you know, I think this is a true existential th- you know threat for them, and they're, they're doing their bean counting and uh, in, in their lobbying in a way I think that's going to be more challenging them than ever before. Yeah, and he strategically timed it so that he can uh, put out his executive announcement on his executive order on the Keystone and, you know, Dakota pipelines um, that go along with, you know, part of this approach of peeling off the construction trades at the expense of those other issues. It's one of the issues we really need to talk about because those unions uh, really broke for a Republican um, in a way that they had not uh, broken, um, certainly since Ronald Reagan, but even more than Ronald Reagan, yeah. um, you know, and in, in ways that their you know, leadership was surprised throughout. And, you know, you take someone like John Kerry, I mean, this is not like a, so, you know, a, a man of the people. And, you know, he's performed so much better, you know, among those unions. Um, so yeah. I think there's a lot of work to be done, uh, you know, to, 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 to rethink that and how, what kind of, you know, message that we, we are going to need to have to, to have the union vote be, you know, swing more to a progressive side in, in those key states. Yeah. And so speaking of, of sort of labor, not necessarily thinking of things as, as its problem, the questions around health care um, that, you know, some pe- people tend to think of the Affordable Care Act as something that is for people like me who are freelancers and buy our own insurance on the, the exchange or people who are on Medicaid. But um, since we have, we are looking at Congressman Tom Price um, at the Health and Human Services Department, who has wanted to do away with not just the ACA, but, you know, Medicare for a while. Um, how would those 
if they go after these things, if they go after the ACA, if they go after Medicaid, which I think we've already got proposals on, um, how does that affect working people and why is this still labor's fight? Well, I think, you know, they give a couple of, you know, reasons. I mean, I think Tom Price's, you know, effort to, to, to make individuals responsible for their own care uh, is, you know, devastating to working Americans who are particularly going to depend uh, on Medicare to have a decent retirement. The percentage of unions that have decent retirement health benefits has really uh, declined uh, dramatically. Um, and, and most unionized workers today, you know, count uh, on Medicare for, for um, health care and retirement. But also the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, has started to reduce um, the cost of health care, um, uh, you know, for, for everyone, uh, has put important um, changes in private health care, like the end in uh, lifetime, uh, you know, uh, maximums that were a, a feature of many health care plans um, before the Affordable Care Act. It was something that was really making, you know, really protecting uh, patients, um, you know, whether or not they were uh, in an employer plan uh, or or in, uh, or in an individual plan. Um, and, of course, there are health care unions that are leading the fight, uh, you know, to preserve uh, the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid. Um, a huge percentage of of healthcare workers, um, you know, depend on Medicaid as a primary payer, and the um, the proposal to block grant uh, Medicaid will be devastating uh, to the healthcare workforce and to millions of working Americans who have a disabled child uh, themselves who get disabled, um, who have an elderly parent um, who depend uh, on the Medicaid program uh, for both healthcare and also, you know, for basic services that make it possible to live. Um, so I think this is, uh, you know, the healthcare fight. I think it is the kind of seminal fight uh, here in Washington where I am, you know, based. Um, and, I, and I think it will be. We, and I think because, you know, both Mulvaney and Price have not uh, backed off from their attack on Medicare and their hearings has made uh, the playing field, you know, very broad. Uh, Kelly and Conway is not for block grant and Medicaid. You know, they could have chosen to go narrow and focus on the very unpopular, um, you know, aspects of the marketplace, uh, the price of, uh, of the insurance, um, the individual mandate, uh, and left those other things alone. And they could have scored an easier political win. Now they've come full throat against health care, and I think it's very dangerous political territory. And I think that would be the thing I would, you know, would say is that, um, you do see whether it's the Women's March, which you mentioned, you know, before the segment, uh, or whether it's, you know, efforts here in, in Washington and, and actions in state capitals, you are seeing, I think, the progressive movement, you know, land some body blows uh, early on uh, against the Trump uh, agenda. Um, you know, and, you know, and, uh, you know, I've been working most closely with Puzder. I mean, I think you, you really see you know, a lot of, you know, uh, body blows being landed against him and being able to paint this administration, um, you know, as uh, a, a really a rape cabinet, as out of touch with the people that Donald Trump said he uh, was going to support. I think those efforts are are, are starting to are starting to, to make an impact. Um, and I think that's, that's our task, um, you know, given how, you know, little direct leverage, um, you know, unions and, and their allies have with members of Congress. And another problematic pick is um, Mnuchin, who I guess in a way he's more of a conventional candidate because it's certainly par for the course, um, even under Obama, to be picking people from Wall Street to um, essentially regulate Wall Street. Um, but uh, you know, what, what about Mnuchin's record um, that we know so far, um, he's been pretty opaque about it, um, stands out to you as maybe a reason to think that he's not just a status quo kind of, um, you know, banker um, who knows it from the inside. I mean, I think he's been, was very clear at his hearing um, that he um, wanted, wants to denuder um, the Consumer uh, Financial Protection Board, um, that he wants to, un, that he is, um, wants to undo um, a lot of the protections uh, in, in, in Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, you know, he's kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, the kind of quintessential, you know, Republican uh, approach to banking regulation and, you know, kind of this specious claim that um, Sarbanes-Oxley is the reason why, you know, we don't have uh, community banks and, and the access of capital. I mean, uh, banks are, you know, and, and, and 
uh, corporations are sitting on more capital um, than they ever have. And um, for our, for our have, listeners who don't know, what is Sarbanes-Oxley? You know, these are the um, you know the the, the regulations um, that were you know put in after the um, after the financial crisis you know, to protect against both the regulations of banks themselves uh, and how they were were operating, uh, and uh, also um, um, you know to have new you know procedures uh, to make sure that you know big banks you know don't fail in the way they did before. What stood out to me, you know, he was unapologetic. Um, you know, for being, uh, you know, for being, you know, someone that made a tremendous amount of money, uh, you know, by foreclosing uh, on um, on individual homeowners when he bought uh, IndyBank and turned into into One West. Um, you know, so he was really unapologetic, you know, about that work and that made a lot of hay at that hearing. Um, I think that you know the 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 Treasury Secretary, you know, um, you know, is going to be, you know, principally in charge of. You know, rewriting the the, the tax code, um, it will be an important advisor in it, uh, and I think that is one of the probably you know most devastating things that we're that we're facing. You know, a large tax cut, uh, both for corporations and individuals, that will be tilted to the one percent, uh, and will really threaten our ability to have spending for programs um, that seek to address poverty and increase opportunity. Um, so, really, gonna you know, this is part of the um, conservative playbook. Um, you know, where it's really undermine uh, government by cutting off its revenue, um, and I think he's, he's going to be a really strong advocate of large, uh, of large tax cuts, while seeming more reasonable on certain, you know, certain, you know, aspects, like, you know, like Trump has around, um, you know, taxing private equity. You know, these, these are really sideshows. Uh, if you cut taxes in the way they're talking about, it really doesn't really matter what you're going to do on some of these, you know, uh, other issues. Right. Um, like, I think he broadly supports things like the Volcker rule and stuff like that. But, you know, he his he sort of continues to trumpet these um, these views that, you know, this is going to be this is going to translate into investment when in reality it doesn't tend to do that when uh, it just stays in corporate coffers. Um, can you can you um, just outline a little bit for us? What exactly his role in the foreclosure crisis was, um, especially since he seems to be advocating for policies that might take us back to some of those earlier eras of deregulation. Um, you know, he he seems to have um, not just profited a lot, but I mean, like, kind of stood out in in the foreclosure scandal crisis. Yeah, man. So he um, bought uh, IndyMac. I believe I have that. Uh, I was IndyMac or IndyBank. IndyMac um, when it was going under. Uh, and and created into into a bank. And part of what he had to do uh, in order to do that was to foreclose on millions uh, of homeowners. Um, and he's been was accused by regulators in California of skirting a lot of the rules, you know, that were put in place uh, to prevent uh, consumers. Um, so he basically, you know, uh, you know, profited by. Foreclosing on, on millions of homeowners, mostly mostly in the West, um, and you know, disposing of those assets and displacing those homeowners, um, many of them who sued or filed complaints um, that they were foreclosed upon, um, you know, for example, for not living in their own home uh, when in fact the you know, individual um, you know was in the home, you know, even when they were being you know claim making the phone call or asked someone to come see her, even when she was in the home, um, so she you know um, you know. Involved in, in, in some accused of being involved in robo signing and some of the aspects of, uh, of of foreclosing, and that's how he converted you know these distressed assets into a into a profitable bank. So he's essentially someone who made a lot of money by foreclosing uh, on lots of and lots of individuals in the West Coast. Uh, not surprising to be Trump sick, who, as we know, said during the financial crisis, well maybe this will be good. I'll be able to make some money off of all these uh, distressed homeowners and distressed real estate. All right. So um, we've been going over individual cabinet picks. Um, overall, I mean, it seems like you know they all just generally fall under this overall sort of corporate, um, you know, pro-business um, ethos. But can you can you discern any kind of overarching agenda that Trump is trying to create with his nominations? Because um, sometimes they seem to take more or less conventional positions and other times they don't. Um, is there, is there a broader kind of, um, you know, framework here? I think there's like a disruptive, uh, framework, um, you know, you know, to this, um, you know, to this, to this 
to a core of the picks, mainly ones we've been talking about. Um, you know, um, that, that he has, you know, that he's put in, you know, he's going to go in and, and take the most disruptive, you know, positions. Uh, and, and I think it can be, uh, can be a very effective smokescreen. Um, you know, here we're talking about someone privatizing public schools. At the same time, he's probably not going to have, we should be talking more about what he's going to do to, you know, to cut the revenues that, that, um, that schools depend on from the federal government. Um, you know, if he's able to cut taxes in the way he is able to do, uh, you know, so I think a lot of these can be a smokescreen uh, for some of the really damaging things that, w- that we're going to do. So in, in that sense, you know, he's, I think his strategy is to throw so much negativity uh, at, at, at progressives and, and liberals and, um, you know, and in certain cases, certain aspects of the corporate establishment that we can't defend against all of it. Um, and so I think there, there's an aspect, you know, uh, of that. Um, to some of the, you know, the picks. And I think that the, the picks that have touched on um, lower lower income Americans and people of color have been the ones that have been more controversial. When you're talking about the economy or, or military, uh, the picks, I would say, have been uh, uh, less controversial uh, in their stances uh, and have been more easily confirmed. So, as you said, there's a whole lot of negativity coming at us all at once. Um but how much impact, as you said, will will any single federal appointment be? Um, you know, you if his other if this is kind of a distraction from what Trump's real agenda is, you know, what are some other avenues um, where we might where there might be an opportunity for resistance, either at the state and local level or perhaps through Congress? You know, is this really are they really as bad as they seem? Uh, you know, at the at the hearing. <laughs> I think I mean I think I've always had a preference it you know that to not you know in my first conversations early after the election I think there were some of us saying well we've been it's been bad before we got through Reagan you know let's be clear this is you know this is really bad um, a lot of damage will be done uh, to people through new policies uh, and also through you know not upholding the core mission of the federal government to protect. Uh, the planet, the individuals, uh, people's lives and livelihoods. At the same time, I do think there are avenues, you know, uh, there are avenues, you know, for resistance. Uh, I think um, the role of the states, not just in enacting, you know, positive policies, but also in, you know, taking a page from the playbook, you know, of the Republicans and taking um, them to court uh, when they overreach uh, and go too far, um, you know, in, in ending regulations. I think, you know, there are processes. Uh, the environment is a good example. Um, many of the new regulations that, you know, President Obama put in were through a scientific process uh, that you cannot reserve, reverse unless there's scientific evidence. And if you try to, um, they can be sued, you know, over that. So I think, you know, lawsuits will be both very important uh, from the state and from individuals, um, you know, to, to protect, uh, you know, to protect, it, to protect individuals. Um, and I do think that, um, some of the big things that he does want to do, um, you know, like uh, repeal or replace the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, you know, have tax reform. He's going to need, uh, in the end, um, you know, uh, either you know, in some cases, 60 votes, um, including a majority. Uh, you know, in, in all cases, and there are um, Republicans. You know, I think about 20. Republicans that were elected in the House in districts where Hillary Clinton won. Um, there are uh, senators um, in places like Maine and Louisiana and Alaska you know, that have close elections that you know, have to be careful, uh, you know, about not going too far. Um, so I think there there are you know elements of you know resistance that we you know can keeping this kind of pressure on uh, and just you know that will make it harder for them to do some of the big, you know, policies, you know, that they seek uh, to enact. Um, you know, there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of inertia in regulations. Um, I think it wasn't a, wasn't a coincidence that a lot of the regulatory progress that President Obama made was in his second term. It takes a while to know where you are and know what you want to do. And, um, you know, so this is another reason it's, you know, if Trump is, you know, able to get reelected, uh, there were probably even more damage than he's able to do uh, in his first four-year term. And so 
to wrap up, I guess, um, <laughs> with this, as a as we're looking at these confirmation hearings right now, what do you think the odds are of any of these particular people that we've talked about or some of the ones we haven't talked about actually not being confirmed? And are there things that people can do and are there particular nominees that they should be focusing on if the goal is to, to stop any particular one? I think the odds are, you know, are not high that we can defeat. Uh, any of any of these, but we are putting them on the ropes, um, you know, more uh, than people, uh, you know, thought. And regardless of what happens with the nominees and their vote, the process is very important. Um, the level of resistance that comes at this stage is an important signal uh, to legislators uh, and to the agency heads once they get in about how much room they're they're going to have um, to do it. I, I think I, I do think that of this group. Uh, Puzzer and Pruitt are among, uh, we didn't talk very much about Pruitt, but are among the most uh, vulnerable, um, you know, for being, uh, you know, so out of step. Um, and I think uh, it's very important, um, you know, to keep pressure around Betsy DeVos. Uh, I think she will ultimately prevail. Uh, I think her statements, you know, have been so far um, unprepared uh, to be Secretary of Education, create an opening uh, you know, to, to, you know, to really critique her uh, on, on what are very important policy basis. So I would say if, if I was thinking of, you know, some nominees, you know, to focus on that are uh, very important uh, and vulnerable, and I would like to say Tom Price, but it just seems to me, uh, like Mike Mulvaney, um, you know, the, the senators seem, you know, pretty deferential uh, to one of their own um, from Congress being, being chosen uh, and, you know, and being harder to defeat them. That was Andrew Stetner of the Century Foundation. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everybody's favorite segment. It is ARG. I wish I'd written that. For today's ARG, I couldn't think of a more relevant piece than the great Francis Fox Piven at The Nation, Throw Sand in the Gears of Everything. Dr. Fox Piven is a friend of dissent and of troublemakers everywhere, and she has spent her career studying and supporting movement organizers who are willing and able to disrupt the system to force change. And that, she writes, is exactly what resistance to Trump will entail. She writes, quote, but while the great movements of American history were the crucial determinant of our most important democratic reforms, from the basic electoral elements of representative democracy to emancipation to labor rights to women's and LGBTQ rights, none of these movements achieved their successes simply through the gathering of people to show their commitment. People gathered, of course, but what makes movements a force when they are a force is the deployment of a distinctive power that arises from the ability of angry and indignant people to at times defy the rules that usually ensure their cooperation and quiescence. Movements can mobilize people to refuse, to disobey, in effect, to strike. In other words, people in motion in movements can throw sand in the gears of the institutions that depend on their cooperation. It therefore follows that movements need numbers, but they also need a strategy that maps the impact of their defiance and the ensuing disruptions on the authority of decision makers. The labor movement, she notes, has been an important part of this history and this future. What stops the gears from turning more than a workers' strike? As we see the resistance from government employees, from park rangers to NASA scientists rebelling against executive orders not to speak to the public, there will be more opportunities for working people to get in the way of the Trump regime, whether from the inside or the outside. We can take inspiration from the janitors of Situl, as well as the inauguration blockades, the mass marches and rallies going forward, the fight for 15 has been and will continue to disrupt business as usual and perhaps even gain some local wins. But imagine for a moment with me the a repeat of the 2006 day without an immigrant general strike. It will take, Dr. Fox Piven notes, more than just marching to disrupt the progress of the Trump administration, though we should note that even marching seems to have rattled the president so much that the protests, we should say, possibly the biggest protest in American history, are all that he and his press secretary can talk about. Imagine, then, the impact of all of those people collectively refusing. My pick for this episode is We Need an Alternative to Trump's Nationalism, It Isn't the Status Quo by Yanis Varoufakis in the UK Guardian. 
Here, Varoufakis of Syriza, now currently an independent activist and thinker, takes on the origins of the Trump phenomenon and links it to a term with a double-sided meaning in political media these days and one that is often misunderstood or abused, nationalism. It long predated Trump, Varoufakis argues, and it took root in the ravages of neoliberalism that were exposed after the crash of 2007. That dilemma forced a crisis in both the neoliberal financial sector and in the collapsing welfare state. And you saw a genuine uprising of outrage and public anger and grievance at both of those from both the left and the right. And workers got hit on both sides, and workers, frankly, were abandoned in many ways on both right and left in the aftermath. Varoufakis writes of the government's response, Their purpose was to impose acquiescence to a clueless establishment that it lost its ambition to maintain its legitimacy. When the UK government forced benefit claimants to declare in writing that, quote, my only limits are the ones I set myself, unquote. Or when the Troika forced the Greek or Irish governments to write letters requesting predatory loans from the European Central Bank that benefited Frankfurt-based bankers at the expense of their people, the idea was to maintain power via calculated humiliation. Similarly, in America, the establishment habitually blamed the victims of predatory lending and the failed health system, though I would argue that this began with the dismantling of the welfare state in the 1990s, not just with the post-2007 crash environment. In any case, Varoufakis continues, the working classes of both countries could only tolerate so much distance between the dreams they were sold by politicians and those they ended up buying into in desperation. In other words, Varoufakis is telling us that the disillusionment of the working masses was concretized by the actual profound institutional failures of certain social programs. While not unreasonable, these grievances led to the irrational conclusion that we were all better off with no government rather than a more responsive government. It led to a genuine disillusionment and ultimately a shift away from democracy. Once someone came in with what seemed like a concrete vision for an alternative future, however unrealistic, amoral, or fraudulent, it became more tangible than the shattered promises they had grown used to seeing, and so they figured, why not? So nihilism took hold, and according to Varoufakis, the tendency toward the radical left or radical right for a while uh, could have pivoted either way in times like these, um, depending on who was there to seize the opportunity and to capitalize on the malcontent, and only Trump had that political savvy courage and, I guess you could say, perniciousness. Varoufakis writes, quote, It was against this insurgency of a cornered establishment that had given up on persuasion that Donald Trump and his European allies, and here Varoufakis is talking about Marine Le Pen and other far-right leaders currently gaining traction in the electoral races, they rose up with their own populist insurgency. They proved that it is possible to go against the establishment and win. Alas, theirs will be a ferric victory, which will eventually harm those whom they inspired. The answer to neoliberalism's Waterloo cannot be a retreat to a barricaded nation-state in the pitting of our people against others fenced off by tall walls and electrified fences. Sadly, the masses' comeuppance here coincided with the opportunistic rise of demagogues across the Western democratic world. And institutions of the state were captured by so-called populists, just as neoliberalism had enchanted the masses with the all-boats-rise rhetoric of the early 1980s. So, is there a way out? Varoufakis says the answer lies in a revival of something the working class has long lacked since being beaten into despair and political alienation over the generations. They lack confidence in our own ability to change society from the ground up. And it's not just about jobs, but about the real value of work and of life. He writes, quote, The answer can only be a progressive internationalism that works in practice on both sides of the Atlantic. To bring it about, we need more than fine principles unblemished by power. We need to aim for power on the basis of a pragmatic narrative imparting hope throughout Europe and America for jobs paying living wages to anyone who wants them, for social housing, for health and education. So is it possible? Is another uprising possible? Many thought Occupy Wall Street would be just such an uprising. Many thought that Varoufakis' former party, Syriza, and their explosive rise across Greek would inspire a so-called third insurgency. There have been times when we've all been guilty of misreading political achievements as long-term movements. Trump has called his campaign a movement. He has thus rekindled 
some of the lost pride of many people desperately yearning for it. But his so-called third insurgency is bound to fail, and what will take its place is perhaps anyone's guess at this point. Ultimately, if a third insurgency does arise, it will or it must take a strong movement to really galvanize working class unrest into a civic insurgency that is genuinely good for working people. And that'll do it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. You can contact us with story ideas, grievances, complaints, or dispatches from the front line against Trump in your community if you're in a sanctuary city or you want to talk about free trade policy and what it's done to your community. Tweet us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Thanks again to everyone who contributed over the holidays. We genuinely appreciate your support, and we know that it's needed now more than ever. Thanks again. Hang in there. You've been listening to Dissent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit dissentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.